For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Dana, and uh, I'm one of the pastors at Cornerstone. And I'm usually working out of the Cornwall site, but every once in a while, and it's usually when Tyler or Gordon or Phil are away, then I get shuffled out to the other spots. I'm glad they're away, because (laughs) it means I get to come and worship with you folks. Uh, It is just wonderful being with you this morning, seeing all of your smiling faces, uh, hearing you sing. Um, You have taken me into the throne room of God this morning, so thank you for doing that. For those of you who are readers, there is a guy, a theologian, British, by the name of J.I. Packer, who has been incredibly influential on my life. If you are a reader, I would encourage you to read his classic called Knowing God. I promise it will rock your world. And uh, here is what he says in Knowing God. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. As it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square, and leave him as one who knows nothing about English or England to fend for himself, so we are cruel to ourselves. If we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it, the world, this world, becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it is a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfold, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This, he says is the quickest means by which one can A, waste their life, and B, lose their soul before asking what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there possibly be than to know God. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd invite you to please turn to chapter 5 of 1 John. And while you're finding it, just a little bit about me. During my 50 years of life, I've moved about 13 or 14 times. And I've spent the lion's share of my existence here in the Maritimes, the Atlantic provinces. While having enjoyed certain experiences south of the border, I have always proudly waved the Maritime flag. I think it would be fair, most of us would probably agree that Maritimers are a unique bunch, amen? Now, one of the things that I greatly missed when I lived in the United States was the casual banter between strangers that we so often take for granted. I distinctly remember walking around the Ohio State University campus in Columbus and saying hello to the fellow pedestrians that were walking my way. After receiving a few icy stares and more than a few flat-out eye aversions, (laughs) I wondered if maybe there wasn't a communication breakdown somewhere, so I tried a, a few different maritime Atlantic province tactics, throwing out the occasional, how's it going? How you doing? What's up? How are things? before finally resorting to one of my all-time favorites. What do you know? (laughs) Nothing. Swing and a miss, 
not one person responded. And so I, maybe that's why I recall with great fondness the smile that it brought to my spirit after returning back home to Atlantic Canada and having an old-timer kindly ask me, what do you know, young fella? What do you know? It's a great question. I'm fascinated by epistemology, the study of knowledge, what we know, what we don't know, what we think we know but we don't, when and how we learn what we know, from whom, how practical it is or is not. Because I'm guessing this morning that most of us, if not all of us, can testify to the truth that was written by, by Jesus' brother James. A double-minded person is unstable in all of their ways. It's incredibly frustrating being stuck in the betwixt and between holding pattern of no man's land. Let me give you a couple examples of this. If you are like me and you don't have a mechanical bone in your body, but you know that your car, truck, motorcycle, whatever you drive, is not working right. And you take it to your mechanic. And they take it for a test drive. And upon returning, they toss you the keys and say, it's running like a dream. Maybe a nightmare. <laughs> or a little closer to home. If when as you or someone you know go to the clinic because something in your body just isn't working right. Something is off. But you go through a battery and battery and battery of tests and after the test results come back, comes back, the medical professional says to you, you have a clean bill of health. Uncertainties due to ignorance, if, when, and as prolonged and intense enough, have the ability to push even the most resolute amongst us to what feels like the tipping point of insanity. We start asking ourselves, we start second-guessing, maybe it is all in my head. It's incredible how much stability can be restored and then maintained once we receive accurate knowledge because once we know that a wheel bearing is shot once we know what illness has invaded our body then we can take concrete steps to deal with whatever hand it is that we're holding but until or unless we know where things stand it is incredibly hard to feel that we're making any progress what do I, what do you, what do we know? John wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John to a Christian church in Ephesus in which the seeds of what would eventually bloom into a system of religious thought called Gnosticism were just starting to germinate. Now one of the primary tenets of Gnosticism is the belief that there is a special secret knowledge that is entrusted to just a few special elite people. 
And that until or unless one experiences that mystical access, your religious experience will be malnourished at best and questionable at the worst. And so the weeds of this heresy had infiltrated the Ephesian congregation to the extent that a certain number of Christians who hadn't received the bells and the whistles and the gold ticket of the inside scoop were starting to question, maybe my salvation isn't legit. Maybe I need to be doing something else. Maybe I need to be pursuing something more. And as such, the primary question that John sets out to settle in these three small letters is, what can Christians know? So John concludes his first letter, 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 13, reading from the Living Bible paraphrase. John writes, I have written this to you who believe in the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Life to the full. Life the way that God intended it to be experienced. And we are sure of this, that he will listen to us whenever we ask him for anything in line with his will. And if we really know that he's listening when we talk to him and make our requests, then we can be sure. I love the certainties in this. We can be sure that he will answer us. Skipping down to verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the rest of this world is under Satan's power and control. And we know, verse 20, that Christ, God's Son, has come to help us understand and find the true God. And now we are in God because we are in Jesus Christ, his Son, who is the only true God, and he is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything and everything that might take God's place in your hearts. What a great verse. If I could have that tattooed on my forehead every morning. <laughs> Keep away from anything and everything that might take God's place in your hearts. Amen. Sincerely, John. This is the word of the Lord. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we don't have to beg you to come. You've been here before any of us showed up this morning. You have made yourself known through the lyrics that have been sung, through the handshakes and hugs that have been shared, through the food that's been eaten. And now I ask God that you would still continue to be pleased to brood over us this morning and that you would speak. May our hearts and our ears be attentive to whatever it is you have for us that'll make us more like your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. For anyone, and there are a lot, actually, of people who would try and make the case that ignorance is bliss, that an out-of-sight, out-of-mind, ostrich-like burying one's head in the sand when it comes to reality, that that is somehow noble or holy. I was struck two weeks ago by how many times through the Old Testament an expression of the Lord is used repeatedly 
where the Lord says, my people die for lack of knowledge. As such, we dare not reduce or trivialize the pursuit of righteous knowledge to some game or some hobby that we can dabble in or take or leave at will. In fact, in the five chapters of 1 John, he uses the verb at least 40 times to know. So in the conclusion of his letter, John highlights six vital things, and these aren't new as of this Sunday. He's mentioned them throughout the book, but this is how he wraps up his letter. And I realized that if I were going to do this, it's worth, there would be a sermon on each one of these points. But this morning, we're just going to fly by, and I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to speak to whichever one or ones that are applicable to you. But John assures the Christ follower first that we can know, number one, we have life to the full. Here's the key to that. Even if and when and as it doesn't feel like we do. This conviction plays a critical role, especially when this world and its agents continually try and convince the Christian that they are living a lesser than, a stick in the mud, a boring existence. And if you work in the secular workforce, you know that this is the perception of you as a Christian. It's everything that you're missing out on. It's all the fun that you're not having. The origin of this can be traced all the way back to Genesis 3, where the enemy successfully convinces Adam and Eve that rather than protecting them from themselves, God was holding out on them. He was keeping them back from being all that they could be. It's disconcerting and heartbreaking to look back over my life and start identifying faces of family, friends, and acquaintances who have started walking with Jesus, but they've become convinced that they're missing out on something, and in response, they have bailed. Whereas scripture states that Jesus, and only Jesus, can provide life to the full, amen? Jesus and only Jesus provides life to the full. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Nehemiah 8 and 10 says that the joy of the Lord is the Christian's strength. One of the most persuasive arguments I have ever seen for not following Jesus are militant, crabby, sour, discontent, knickers, and not Christians. It's one of the reasons I maintain that one of the most effective means of evangelism is not knocking on doors till your knuckles are bloody. It's simply demonstrating an authentic joy for and to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It was the catalyst for the Philippian jailer's conversion. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas were brutally beaten after which they were shackled in the bowels of the prison. And verse 25 tells us, 
that around midnight that night, Paul and Silas were what? Saying, woe is me, as they licked their wounds. Uh-uh. They were praying and singing hymns to God. They were having themselves their own little worship service in the bowels of the prison. In response to their joy, an earthquake came. And in verse 30, we find the terrified jailer saying, what must I do to be saved? Why? Because Paul and Silas exhibited an authentic joy in and of the Lord. My sisters and brothers, we can sing in the troubled times. We can sing when we win. We can sing when we lose our step and when we fall down again. We can sing because God picks us up. We can sing because he's there. We can sing because he hears us when we call to him in prayer. We can sing with our last breath. If you ever get to be with people who love Jesus and you see them into glory, it is a beautiful thing. We can sing with our last breath. We can sing because we know that one day we'll be singing with the angels and the saints around his throne. Hallelujah. And so that we can know that we have life to the full. Number two, verses 14 and 15. We can know that God listens to us. The Lord hears the prayer of the righteous, Proverbs 15 and 29. In Jeremiah 29 and 12, God says, You will call upon me and you will pray to me and I will listen to you. In John 9, the blind man that Jesus had healed testifies to the cynics and the skeptics. If anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God hears them. I grew up in a pastor's home, and Friday night was filled with ritual in my house. The ritual started with supper. It was homemade beans and brown bread every Friday night. You don't get much more maritime than that. <laughs> then we all gathered around. I sound like such an old man, Matt. <laughs> then we gathered around the radio. We gathered around. We did have a TV. We gathered around the TV and we watched the Tommy Hunter show from start to finish. How many of you know who Tommy Hunter is, right? Awesome. Those of you who are 30 and younger, what, are you, what planet are you from? Oh, but that was just, that, that was not even the main course because after Tommy Hunter, I told you that J.I. Packer influenced me tremendously. Second, but very closely, was the Dukes of Hazard that was right after. <laughs> My first three cars, I wanted to weld the door shut, but uh, <clears throat> not practical when you live in the Maritimes. Now, for those of you who know who the Dukes are, I realize that most of my illustrations this morning are going to betray and reveal my age. But for those of you who know who the Dukes are, there was a lovable sheriff on there called Roscoe Pico Train. <laughs> And his pet was a basset hound called, oh, come on, you're not fans. Flash, Flash. Now, watching the Dukes was my first exposure to the radio, CB radio lingo. You got your ears on? 
Now, while I can hear on this point, while I can hear my mother in my ear saying, Dana, simple things for simple minds, I mention Sheriff Roscoe because here in chapter 5, John assures the Christ follower that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our Heavenly Father's ears are always on for and to his kids. Exodus 3 and 7 tells us the Lord said, I have seen the troubles my people have suffered in Egypt, and I have heard their cries. That is as true today as it was to the children of Israel. But not only can we know, can we be confident that God is listening to and for us, thirdly, verse 15, we can be sure that God will answer us. This is different than listening to and for us. I'm a process thinker. I like to absorb what is being told to me so that I can give a reasoned response. I will, if any of you are wired this way, nine out of ten meetings that I go to, I'll get home, and three minutes, three hours later, I'll think, huh, this would have been productive to say then. <laughs> so if you are wired like that, and if you're not, my son is 12 years old, and so as you can imagine, he is full of questions from the moment he wakes up to the moment he goes to bed. And one of the things that drives my son nuts is that I'm a process thinker. Because he will ask me a question, and if I were a good dad, if I was responsible, I would say, son, just give me a minute, because I'm thinking. But I don't, because I'm thinking it through in my mind. So from his response, or from his appearance, he will say this, dad, why are you ignoring me? And so over the last few weeks, the Holy Spirit has been asking me, how often do we approach our Heavenly Father in the same way that my 12-year-old son approaches me? Especially when this culture in which we swim is one where if you don't mash the gas as soon as it turns green, you're getting honked at from behind. Generally, North Americans are recognized for wanting what we want yesterday. How easily those expectations we have of one another can bleed into our expectations of God. Here's another illustration half of you may know. How many of you know what a magic eight ball is? It was a toy. It was a gadget that you would ask it questions and you would shake it and then the answer would come in. Contrary to how many expect or insist God to answer our prayers as if he were some magic eight ball, the vexing question for many is not merely if God will answer, but when will you answer? How many, how often believe that God doesn't answer? just because his answer isn't as quick as we would like it to be. Packer again reminds us, wait upon the Lord is a constant refrain in scripture, and it's a necessary word, for God often keeps us waiting. He is not in such a hurry as we are, and it is not his way to give more light on the future than we need for action in the present or to guide us more than one step at a time. 
When in doubt, do nothing but continue to wait on God because when action is needed, the light will come. Do you believe it, church? It doesn't make it any easier, does it? One day at a time, sweet Jesus. That's all I'm asking of you. Is it? Really? Isaiah 40 and 31 is a lot easier to wear on a t-shirt or put on a coffee cup or an inspirational poster than it is to live practically. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And so the spiritual to that song says, so teach me, Lord, teach me, Lord, to wait. Lamentations 3, 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly. Wait without things stuck in your ears. That's my paraphrase. For the salvation of the Lord. And so John assures the follower of Christ that while it may not be in the way or in the time that we would like God to answer, we can know that he will. For verse 19, we know that we are children of God. Some of the most tormented people I have ever met in my life are those who, due to circumstances completely outside of their control, do not know who one or both of their parents are. This uncertainty has haunted every footstep of their lives, casting a shadow over everything that they have put their hand to. And on a purely human level, the degree of confidence that comes with knowing whose we are even when acknowledging that they are far from perfect, supersedes that of those who don't know who they're looking at when they stare into the mirror. John tells the Christ follower that we can live out of the assurance that God is our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. 5, verse 19. We know that the world around us is under Satan's power and control. If you ever wonder, like me, how people can do the incredibly dark things that they do, if you ever, making it more personal, wonder how you can possibly think the incredibly dark things that we think, for me it puts things in tremendous perspective when we understand, when we know, that for the time being, the world as we know it is the devil's playground. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes that the world obeys the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world, and that he is the spirit at work in the hearts of everyone who refuse to obey God. In chapter 6, verse 12 of Ephesians, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, 
against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. We can know that to be true. That would be a very dark and depressing place to leave. So I'm glad Paul doesn't. Sixthly and lastly, in verse 20, we can know that Christ, God's Son, has come to help us both understand and find the true God. I would hate to know how much time, ink, and breath have been wasted down through the centuries by Christians and non-Christians alike trying to come to grips with who Jesus is and why he came. In John 14, Jesus declares to Philip, as well as to you and I this morning, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Which is why the author of Hebrews implores us, so cast your eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end of our faith. These six certainties that John lists in chapter 5 address a whole different bunch of different groups of people. If you're here this morning and you have yet to ask Jesus to be the sovereign to whom you answer, the Bible guarantees that you will be unstable in all of your ways. There is no rest, says the Lord, for the wicked. The good news of that is you can leave this place this morning singing, it is well with my soul. Second, for those of us who don't do know Jesus, but continue to be haunted by what the hymn, just as I am, calls fightings and fears within and without, John tells us that if we utilize the Holy Spirit's gift of childlike faith, we can all accept and believe these six assurances. Recognizing that this will be harder for some of us than others. One of my favorite Bible characters is the father described in Mark 9, who when Jesus asks if he believes that he can heal his son who is sick, the man's response, I just love because it's so honest, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. What an honest and beautiful confession. Third, during seasons in which we question whether or not walking with Jesus is the most fulfilling light, life, especially if you're in a season where everything seems to be going down. Wondering if we're missing out on something. John tells us that we can be confident that in Jesus we are living life to the full and that everything else dims in comparison that the closer we walk with Christ, as the chorus says, the more the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Fourth, as we pray, when it feels like God has left the building, when it feels like the heavens are as brass, 
John tells us that we can know that God always has his ears on for his kids. And not only is he listening to and for us, we can know that in his perfect time, he will respond to us. Amen? That in waiting upon the Lord, our solace will be found. How well do you wait upon the Lord? During the times that we're feeling insecure and unsteady, unable to understand or, to be honest, to even believe that someone can love us when we keep getting things so wrong so often. John tells us that we can hold our head high with the assurance that God is our good, good father who is perfect in all of his ways. As we struggle to connect the dots between humans who are created a little lower than the angels, yet at the same time who think and engage in monstrous deeds, it is clarifying to know that here and now we are simply living out the curse of Genesis 3. That until the righteous king returns to make all things new, our enemy is working overtime to steal and kill and destroy. How readily do I, you, we recognize Satan's presence and his tactics in this present world. With a cacophony of voices all vying to convince and persuade us to follow them, we can confidently know that Jesus Christ, God's Son, has come to help us both understand and find the true God. My sheep hear my voice, says, John, says Jesus in John 10. I know them and they follow me. I give them life to the full and they shall never perish. I and my Father are one. Ironically and paradoxically, the longer I follow Jesus, the more intimately I come to recognize the voice of my shepherd, the more things I realize I don't know. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known. Nor why unworthy Christ in love has redeemed me for his own. I know not how the saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word has wrought a peace within my heart. I know not how the spirit moves, convincing us of sin, revealing Jesus through his word, creating faith in him. I know not of what good or ill may be reserved for me, of weary ways or golden days. Before his face I see. I know not when my Lord may come, at night or noonday fair, nor if I walk the veil with him, or if I meet him in the air. And if I said the song to my 12-year-old, he'd say, you don't know much, do you? <laughs> but here, my sisters and brothers, is what I do know. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. 
I'm going to ask Chris and the band to come back. And as they do, in the second chapter of his first letter to the Christians in Corinth, Paul said this, When I came to you, I determined to know nothing except Christ and Christ crucified. And so now my heart's desire, Lord, is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what I could never earn, all-surpassing gift of righteousness, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is really is no greater thing. You are my all. You are the best. You are my joy. You're my righteousness. And we just want to say to you this morning, and we love you, Lord. I believe that J.I. Packer was 100% right. We really are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. This world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for any of those who do not know about God. What higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there ever be than to know God. Amen.